Well, today um, is Pentecost Sunday, and of course we uh, read from the book of Acts about the coming of the Holy Spirit, and hopefully we're going to see the person of the, of the Holy Spirit. You know, we have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. And we see how that, uh, from what is written in the book of Acts, how that the Holy Spirit comes to let us know, to empower us, to make real to us our experience with Jesus Christ. And so what we know of God, the Spirit has taught us. We have to read the scriptures, we have to understand the scriptures, but in that understanding there becomes an assurance. It's like we belong to God. Well, why? <laughs> why do we belong to God? Because uh, we're born, because we are alive in the United States? Does that mean we're born, you know, and we belong to God? Well, we belong to God whenever we give our life to him. And when we give our life to him, we studied this in the um, Sunday school lesson, talked about how that the, the foundation of our faith is based upon the doctrine of what the doctrines say about the scriptures and about God and about salvation and the Holy Spirit, those, those foundational doctrines. And then we have experiences that go with those things. We don't have experience and then our doctrine. We have our doctrine and then our experiences. And if they our experiences are outside of our beliefs or what we understand the scripture to say, then we've got to look at our interpretation of our experiences. So as we look at chapter 2, beginning at, um, excuse me, it'd be chapter 1, beginning uh, at verse 1, it says, In my former book, Theophilus, now Luke is the author of the book of Acts, and he's also the author of the book of Luke. And so the book of Acts is kind of a continuation of the book of Luke. So as he begins in Acts, he's saying, in my former book, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen, after his sufferings, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. Now, the, the doctrine of the early church the most important fact in the early church was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, the celebrating of the birth of Christ and all that, that didn't come along until later. But it was this understanding of the resurrection. Jesus is alive from the dead. Now, the big scene about his crucifixion and the, you know, the terrible punishment that he went through, and it was an obvious fact that he had died. Well, the more convincing fact then was his resurrection. If there is no resurrection from the dead, if Jesus, isn't risen, if Jesus is not risen from the dead, then there's no resurrection for us. It says that Jesus was the first fruits of them that slept, meaning those who died. And in and, and the scripture, it talks about sleep, things like that, but it, in reference to death, because death is something to be awakened from. <laughs> That's why it's referred to as sleep, something to be awakened from. So whenever we die, we have this understanding that we belong to God, and we have this understanding long before we die. So we're living our life with this foundation of belief of who Jesus is and how the Holy Spirit then has become part of our life to help us understand those, those doctrines, those beliefs. And it says that in Luke writes, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So there was not just one or two individuals that saw Jesus alive. There was 
one, sta- one place it states that there was about 400 people in one location where Jesus was seen. So his appearance and his being able to talk with people and interact with people was a very common thing after his uh, resurrection. So it was almost an expectancy, but it was for 40 days that he kept this, this up before he ascended into heaven. But he gives, them, he gives the people that he's speaking to, and there was at least 120 of them at this particular place. He says, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift of my father, uh, which you have heard me speak about. John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is telling this group, and we know that in the upper room, which we're going to read about in Acts chapter 2, that there were at least 120 individuals in the upper room. So there was at least 120 individuals there seeing Jesus ascend into heaven. And it goes on and talks about in those verses that um, people ask him a question. When are you going to restore your kingdom? You know, you're going away, you're going to come right back. You know? So it was almost like the people who went to this place to wait for the Holy Spirit, they stayed there in one accord. Um, they didn't know how long they were going to have to stay, but they stayed 10 days because 40 days after his resurrection, and then on Pentecost is 50 days after Passover. And Pentecost, to the Jewish tradition, is the day in which the law was received by Moses. So it was a, it was a celebration. It was a holiday for um, the, the Jewish people. And so that's how we know 40 days Jesus ascended to heaven. He tells the people who are watching him go up into heaven, go to Jerusalem and wait there. Tarry there and see what the Spirit, you know, for what I've promised you, the Holy Spirit. So he was taken up uh, to heaven, and while they're watching him go ascend into heaven, the angels appear and say, what are you doing looking here? <laughs> the same Jesus that you saw going up, he's going to come in like manner. So perhaps they feel like, oh, he's, he's going up, he'll be right back. You know, he's got to make a local call. And he's going up to make a, make a few calls and get some people in order. But he tells them, you know, go back to Jerusalem and wait. So they head back to Jerusalem, chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. And suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So what we have going on here in this upper room, they hear the wind, all right? Um, people said in hurricanes that, you know, they, it sounds like a, a freight train coming towards them. <laughs> you, not only, you not only feel the wind blowing against your house or wherever you're at, but you hear this tremendous sound. It's like a freight train coming at you. Well, in this upper room, it talks about how that they heard this wind. They didn't feel it as in blowing through from window, window to window, they heard a, like the sound of a rushing wind. So perhaps like a freight train coming. And then it says, they saw. They saw the Holy Spirit came, and they saw like things of fire sitting on each of the individuals. So there was this fire from heaven came, as it were, and sat on each of the individuals. And then those individuals began to speak in a language that they didn't know. 
what is called Pentecost. Well, we'd say, well, that's kind of it's kind of far-fetched. How can people speak in a language they don't know? Well, it's a, it's a work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life to empower them to initial physical evidence of God's blessing upon that life. And we know that something happened because, verse 5, there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. So here is this Feast of Pentecost where the Jews from every nation had come to celebrate this holiday of the giving of the law. And so they were in Jerusalem, and they heard and saw all this that was going on in this upper room. Now, when I was in Jerusalem, we were able to go to this place that is thought to be the actual site of the upper room, we, you know, because it's referen- the reference point puts it to, in that area. And so you're in this kind of a large auditorium on a second floor, and um, you're, you're in this, and it's kind of, well, it's kind of a big room, but it's not, not as big as this room. And you think, wow, 120 people in there for 10 days. <laughs> that's, that's a lot of people. And, uh, but they were there waiting and praying, and also they, they were ministering to one another about the doctrines about Jesus and about things that he talked about. And so... When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment. So the people outside of that room who were out in the streets, if you can imagine, it's a packed city. Jerusalem is a packed city when all these people are coming in. And the streets are not thoroughfares. They're, you know, just 10, 20 feet wide. And between houses, it's like five feet wide. Between the houses, you know, they've got them piled one on top of another. And so when you, people are crowded in the streets, and so they hear and they also see what's going on. This place is on fire. <laughs> that place, well, there must be something going on up there. There's this great sound like a, a wind that's going to blow apart. And the crowd together came together in bewilderment. But each one heard their own language. Hmm. So the individuals who had traveled to Jerusalem for this holiday, they came from, verse 9, they came from Parthia, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phyra, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, uh, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, and, we're, and, they, and we hear them declaring the wonders of God in their own language. <laughs> so what makes this so special is that the message of Jesus Christ is given through individuals that are able to speak in a language that they don't know, but there are people outside, so it isn't gibberish, there are people outside hearing them declare the glory of God in their own language. Now, it'd be like, and they, and they say, however, they made fun of them. Some of them made fun of them and said, they've, t- they've had too much wine. <laughs> well, it wasn't too much wine. It was a lot of the Holy Spirit. And verse 12 says that they were amazed and they asked one another, what does this mean? How can this happen? Well, then we move on to verse 14. And so now I, I imagine that 
this, is, this has been going on, and the people outside, there's a crowd gathering, and there's this happening in this room. It's, you know, it's not a, like a three-story building. It's just there's a first floor, and then ab- above that first floor, there's a, a large, large auditorium. But you like the basement of the church is on street level, and you can go in, and there's rooms in there. But on the second floor is this auditorium. So imagine it's kind of large for that time period. And there's windows along each of the sides of the walls. And so they're able to hear. People on the street are able to hear. And so people outside are wondering what's going on. So either Peter stands at the window or he goes outside. And he begins to, begins to tell them that um, Peter stood up with the eleven raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. So Peter begins to tell them, this, isn't, this phenomena that you see is something that has already been told to us by the prophet Joel. Now, <laughs> It's interesting, we, we, we've spoken about the book of Isaiah. Last week we did Isaiah 40. And if you read through Isaiah 40, and you see the Isaiah's picture of Jesus and the crucifixion, you would say, well, he wrote that after. <laughs> he wrote that after the crucifixion. But if you read Isaiah 40, Isaiah has this revelation of the Messiah and how that the Messiah is going to be rejected, and how that he is going to be, that he won't even look like a man, Isaiah says. And some, some portions of that interpretation of Isaiah says that the, the, the back of Jesus was like a plowed field, that there was like no piece of skin left unturned. So the beating that Jesus took was so severe that he did not even resemble a man. That's what Isaiah presents. And, and he sees this image that there was nothing about him that would be desirable. And so you have this image of Isaiah saying this about Jesus, but you also have Isaiah saying, Behold, a virgin shall conceive. We read that at Christmas time. So here is the prophets, inspired by God, writing about something that's going to happen sometime out in the future. And when the Jewish authorities, those that are the leaders of the Jewish community and the Jewish faith, they don't see a Messiah coming as a suffering Savior. They want a king. Now, you got your choice. We got want a king or we want this guy we can crucify. Let's see now. They want the king. Well, Jesus didn't come as a king. He came as a servant of God to serve the kingdom of God, to serve people, meaning he came to die for our sins. In his death, he took upon himself the sin of the world. And that sin is something every one of us have, and we've all sinned, we've all done something wrong and, and before God, but it's not the point of proving our sin, it's a matter of proving that God can save us from our sins. That the Holy Spirit that spoke here on the day of Pentecost is the same Holy Spirit that speaks to our lives. God hasn't changed. And that the Holy Spirit that came at Pentecost 
still resides within the hearts and lives of each of us. Whenever we have Christ in our life, we're drawn to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit. You know, it isn't like we're doing it ourselves. I think I need to be religious. <laughs> I think I need to stay home from church today. I'm preaching to these people here. And uh, <laughs> the ones that are in the empty pew here. Not the ones who sit in the third and fourth pew, but this one right here. <laughs> so, you know, the Spirit leads us and draws us. You know, sometimes people think, uh, well, it's just fate. It's just coincidence. It's just, I don't believe in coincidence and don't believe in luck. I believe that God has a way of working in our lives and working things out to the good. And even though there are problems, our faith and the working of the Spirit helps us to find a solution. This was another part of our Sunday school lesson. Moses was having trouble with the children of Israel. Okay, he's got a million people that he's running, that he's leading. And they're complaining, you know. We don't like this manna. You know, manna, we know, we know what it is. It says, what is it? That's what manna means. What is it? And so they're eating this stuff they don't like, and they've been doing it for years, and so they're complaining to, Ma- to Moses, and Moses is complaining to God. And he's kind of upset with God that, you know, he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't run for this job. God called him to do it. Well, when God sends an answer to Moses... He doesn't ridicule him or get on him because he has this, he feels over, overwhelmed by the circumstance. He gives Moses a plan to help him do away with or to divide up his responsibilities. It's interesting, you know, we would say, well, buck up, straighten up, put your nose to the grindstone, do this. God doesn't, doesn't come at and, as it were, badger Moses, he comes with Moses as a solution to the problem. And I think that sometimes when we see our relationship with God, we see it as God trying to make us good, (laughs) trying to make us do the right thing. Well, it's like telling a child, I always love the story where you you tell the child to sit down. Sit down, sit down, and finally you go over and it's your own kid because you couldn't do this to another kid because they'd arrest you and sue you. You just sit them down, you know. So, then the little kid says, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> you know? And sometimes I think, we're, we think that of God. He's trying to make us do something we don't really want to do. And no, he'll never do that. Because the Holy Spirit is the perfect, as it were, gentleman. He will always invite, he will never drive. See, people are driven to hell. People are led to heaven. People are driven to hell by addictions and, you know, desires and lusts and, you know, all those types of things. They're addicted and they're pulled, as it were, into hell. But God, his sheep know his voice. He's the good shepherd. The shepherd leads his sheep. The Holy Spirit helps us to understand the doctrines of our faith so that we can walk with God. And we, you know, who's perfect? No one. So in our walking with God, he helps us to understand, not berate us for our failures, but to give us a plan of how we can overcome and deal with these things. So the work of the Spirit is one of knowing God and helping us to understand who he is and what his, what his emphasis is for our life. 
Joel, or Amos, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Jay. Peter says this about the prophet Joel in chapter 17. Now this is Joel's prophesy, prophecy about what will come. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. So I'm, I'm, I'm almost there to dream dreams. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> there you go. Thank you, Terry. He's been practicing that. I've been telling him to have it on cue. Yeah, timing's everything. You know, thank you very much. I think you need to make it louder, though, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Don't want people to miss it, you know. So anyhow, that the last days, we say, okay, last days. Well, I was, the, the scripture says, the scriptures say that a thousand years is, is a day in heaven. So in heaven, it's only been two days. It's only two days since Pentecost. A thousand years is a day. So in that time frame, we're still in the last days. <laughs> and so as we look at this, God's work in our life is that we would have a vision, a goal, a desire that is born in our heart and our lives that God has birthed. And the Holy Spirit comes to us and, and reminds us and helps us to, to know that goal, that vision, we call them goals and, you know, that types of stuff, that God has put that in our heart and he has put those things out there in front of us and he's going to help us achieve them. So the work of the Spirit is not to frustrate us in, the, in our walk, but to help us understand the pitfalls and the difficulties so that we can reach our goal. The ultimate goal is heaven. And on this journey, we are wanting to know God better and having the ability then to present Jesus Christ in a real way to a lost world. So our faith isn't about performing. That would be a hypocrite who's an actor. So we're not acting the part of a Christian. We are allowing ourselves to be a Christian, a follower of Jesus Christ, one that stumbles and falls and gets up and does the right things and still gets, does things wrong, you know, because we're not perfect. But God is there not berating our faults, but giving us a plan to overcome them. It's not how many times we do something wrong. It's how many times we get up and keep doing the, trying to do the right thing with the help of God. So, verse 18, Even my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. Now, you've got to understand that when Joel wrote this, Women had no rights. They were property. They could be bought and sold. They could be done away with. I was waiting for the women or somebody to say amen. But anyhow, <laughs> they, could be, they could be done away with. But Joel says he gives them equal status. It's the scriptures that has given equal status to men and women. And he says that the women, both men and women, God's spirit is going to be poured out upon. So there's no special gender with God. In heaven, there is no gender. So in our life, we have a special purpose that he has given to us, and the Holy Spirit comes 
with us understanding the doctrines of our faith and understanding Jesus Christ and what, he, what God wants for us, the Holy Spirit then comes to enable and empower, to enlighten, strengthen, give us the desire to finish the course, to arrive at the goal. And if we arrive at a goal, we know that there's another one out there further. So he's going to pour out his spirit upon his servants, both men and women. I will show wonders in the heavens above, signs in the earth below, blood and fire on billows of smoke. Now, I'm not quite sure what all that means, but we know that there are a lot of things going on in the heavens that we have put together. But perhaps this is speaking of something that will come. Don't know. Sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. But verse 21, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So it isn't that we could say, write your name here, join here, do this, do that. Those who call upon the name of the Lord, that we have reached a point in our life in which we call upon God and ask him for his forgiveness. Why did he come? He came to die upon the cross for the sins of the world. He came to die for our sins. And so we can't go through life and keep them to ourselves. God is saying, let him go. You know, there's often we, you know, hear people say, and especially in uh, seminars and so on about self-help and all that, you got to let go of the past. You know, let go of your failures. What is the greatest hindrance to future success? Past success. (laughs) Because we always remember how it was. And... The challenge is, let go of the past. And what does God do? Forgetting those things which are behind, Paul says this, and what was behind Paul? The stoning of Stephen. The tearing apart of Christian families. Killing, having them killed, thrown in prison. And when God changes Paul's, Saul, Tarsus' life to Paul, he, he declares I have to let go of my past so that he could become what God wanted him to be. What he did was wrong. And so God has come to forgive us and to help us let go of the past. You're forgiven. Those things are never remembered against you again. So what is there? There is the present and the future. And the Holy Spirit comes to help us see that this revelation of who Jesus is is the foundation upon which everything in our life is built. It's not a whip. It's not a critical spirit. It is a love that draws us, the Holy Spirit, draws us to God, forgives us, binds up our wounds, gives us strength for the moment, and hope for tomorrow. Is there a better plan? And that's the message that God brings to us. It's not one of conformity and cookie cutter and do this and do this and do this. We make decisions based on our relationship with God that are outlined in the scriptures. Don't kill. Don't, don't lie. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. No other gods before you. Sexual immorality. You know, addictions. You know, don't covet your neighbor's donkey. You don't know anybody has a donkey, do you? <laughs> so... <laughs> don't covet his donkey. All right? Let him have it. <laughs> yeah. But the, the challenge is, covet is, 
you know, Cliff came with a brand new, let's see, uh, Bentley. That's a pretty expensive car. Cliff comes with a new Bentley, all right? Covetousness is, I don't want a Bentley, I want his Bentley. Now, I'm, see, that's covetous. If I like to have one, okay. And I like what I have just like his, that's not coveting. But I want his. You see, what happens in the competition we have with others is that we, we put success on whether or not we take away from them what they have. But our success is in allowing God to inspire us and to allow his blessings to flow into our life, which would exceed, perhaps, the Bentley, which would exceed these other things. And so what God, the exceeding precious promises that we have, are what God births in our life. And those are the ones we need help in achieving because we need God's help to achieve them, and that is the work of the Holy Spirit. Amen? I have to say that loud because I'll go on. Amen? Amen. All right, then I'll quit. <laughs> but we see how the Holy Spirit is working, and, and again, it's probably the doctrine of the Holy Spirit stands in leading the way to the redemptive truths. I'm not done yet, see? It wasn't loud enough. With the exception of 2nd and 3rd John, every book in the New Testament contains a reference to the Holy Spirit's work. Every gospel begins with the promise of the Holy Spirit. And yet the Holy Spirit is one of the most neglected doctrines in the church. So, the vitality of the church is made alive by the work of the Spirit. And the vitality of our relationship with God is the work of the Holy Spirit helping us, walking with us, never leaving nor forsaking, helping us to give us wisdom and understanding, grasping the truth and bringing the truth together in our heart and lives. And that's where we study the Scripture and the Spirit makes it right to us. The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit that inspired the writers is the same Holy Spirit that inspires me, the reader. So we allow God to help us in those things. Father, we thank you that you hear our prayers. And God, we commit ourselves to you. We ask for your forgiveness. Lord, you loved us enough to die for our sins. So, Lord, we ask you to forgive us of our sins. Write our name in your book of life. May we receive the knowledge of the Spirit speaking to our own hearts and lives that we are safe in this life and in the life to come. Help us now, Lord, to build upon these things. We ask your blessing upon each life and each commitment and each one of us, Lord. Help us, guide us, we pray. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, we ask. Amen. Amen.